Hello, and welcome to Right Now with Ralph Martin, a podcast where author, speaker, and worldwide renewal leader, Dr. Ralph Martin, shares what the Holy Spirit has placed on his heart for this moment. Words of encouragement from the Lord to strengthen you for such a time as this. Join us each week, wherever you get your podcasts, to find strength, hope, and courage for the Christian journey. And now, your host, Ralph Martin. Well, when I was praying and thinking about this talk, um, I, I thought about all the different images that, that the, the scripture uses for Jesus and for God, and fire is a very, very common theme. You find it in the Old Testament, you find it in the New Testament, and one of the images that's most used by the inspired word of God to describe God is a fire, you know, fire is a very intense image. It's, 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 you know, when you think about earth, wind, you know, fire and whatever, sky, you know, uh, fire is the one that's really got a punch to it. It's really got a bite to it. It has many positive features. You know, it brings light. It brings heat. Thanks be to God. It can be a sign of hope and promise when you catch light of a fire in the distance that home is there, safety is there. And there's many, many positive connotations in Scripture too, like the tongues of fire at Pentecost. You know, when the Holy Spirit descended in the form of fiery flames over the apostles' heads, that was an outward sign of what was happening to their hearts. Their hearts were being set on fire. So the fire of God's love, the fire of his energy, his passion, inflaming hearts with love, with gratitude, with zeal. Then we also see how the Lord has used fire to purify. And we need purification, don't we? So we need the consuming fire to consume in us what's blocking our response to the Lord. We need the consuming fire of God's love, his holiness, to give us pure hearts, to take away all the disordered desires in our heart and center them around loving God and loving our neighbor. When Isaiah got the call from the Lord, he felt like he was unworthy. He was a man of unclean lips, and he was. So then the Lord sent an angel with a burning, fiery coal to purify him. When Jeremiah was given the commission to speak God's word, and this is really quite a commission, Jeremiah, I want you to speak God's word. They're not going to pay any attention to you, but speak it anyway. <laughs> how's, how, how's that as uh, you know, high motivation for the success of your mission? Jeremiah's mission, if it was to be successful meant that he obeyed and did it, even though he knew the word he was speaking would not be heeded. And we have to do that too, don't we? We have to speak a word when the Lord inspires us to, even if we don't see fruit from it. And then we read about the prophet Malachi, where the refiner's fire is getting the impurities out of silver and gold. It's coming to the surface as dross. So the fire of God's love in our heart, the fire of the Holy Spirit in our heart is refining 
our hearts, refining our minds, making them pure, bringing to the surface what's impure. John of the Cross has an amazing kind of image he uses to describe the process of purification. He talks about when you put a green log on the fire, it starts to turn ugly colors. It turns black and it starts sputtering and it lets off kind of juices and it lets off smells. And it, you know, it's just kind of like gets all charred and real ugly and all this stuff is coming out of the, the log. But then at a certain point, the log turns into fire and the log is fire itself. The log is radiating heat and light. And John describes that as the process of our purification, the consuming fire that consumes what's keeping us from full union with God. But then we also hear in 1 Corinthians 3 about a purifying fire that it's good that it's there for us, but we should try to avoid it if we can. It says, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, the day of judgment, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation of Jesus survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So it's talking about pretty much the fire of of purgatory, I think. You know, it's talking about, you know, try to get to heaven, but if you don't, praise the Lord for purgatory. There's still purification that could happen for you, but it is purification. And and there's a pain to the process of purification. So uh, as I always suggested when I'm talking about this, you know, shoot for heaven. If you miss, praise the Lord for purgatory. Don't shoot for purgatory. If you miss, it's hell. But also, fire cannot just purify, not just inflame with love, but fire can judge. When the fire of God is resisted, it puts us in danger of destruction. The destruction of being separated from God because we're not cooperating with the fire. One of the most powerful commands in scripture, both the Old Testament and New Testament, is you must be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. We kind of skip over it. It's so familiar to us, but it's a command. It's a requirement. It's a necessity. You must be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. The whole purpose for, why which, we, for which we've been created is union with God. But the only way we can be united with God is to undergo the cleansing fire, is to undergo the purifying fire is to undergo what John of the Cross describes in another text as the living flame of love that's more and more turning us into love as it burns within our soul. So resisting the purifying fire, the consuming fire, is not a good thing to do. It defeats the whole purpose of our creation. It frustrates the whole reason why God created us 
it rejects the whole reason why we're alive today. The reason why we're alive today is to become one with God, to continue the process of transformation, of growth, of healing, of deliverance. Fire can destroy, can be an instrument of judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, fire fell from the sky to destroy those who refused to repent and were doing wicked deeds. If we refuse to repent and we're doing wicked deeds, we're in great danger of resisting the consuming fire and having the fire consume us, destroy us. Second Peter chapter three, verses nine to 18. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you not wishing that any should perish. He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed by the consuming fire, but that everyone should reach repentance. You can't get into the kingdom by proudly marching in. Unless we're willing to humble ourselves and admit our sin and repent, we will not enter the kingdom of God. It's the message of John the Baptist. It's the message of Jesus. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is at hand. And that's as true today as the day that Jesus first preached it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. God is so patient. You know, we're always thinking, saying, Lord, I think this would be a good time to judge the world. You know, I think this would be a good time to uh, punish the wicked. And he says, no, 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 not yet. You know, be patient. You know, we want to give everybody maximal chance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. And the elements will be dissolved with fire. And the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of persons ought you not to be? Living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. But according to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which the righteousness of God dwells. So anyway... What conclusion should we draw from the fact that the consuming fire could destroy us if we resist it? Peter tells us here, what kind of lives must we not live? What kind of commitment to growing and holiness must we not make? What kind of effort must we not put into being with the Lord and obeying him and desiring him and having him first in our life? Jesus makes this so clear time and time again. Matthew chapter five, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't welcome lust into your heart. Jesus is saying he, he appreciates us keeping the commandments, but he's going for internal transformation. He's going for completely capturing our hearts so we don't, willingly or voluntarily give ourselves to anything in our mind or heart that's not clean and that's not holy. And then he goes on to say, right after he gives us that challenge, that it's not just about not committing adultery, but it's not welcoming lust into our heart. He goes on to say, if your right hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to enter the kingdom missing a hand, missing an eye, than to go down to hell with an intact body. Jesus is saying, get your priorities straight. Do whatever you have to do to get free from serious sin. St. Augustine was a slave to serious sin. He had a mistress. He had a child out of wedlock. By the time he wanted to become a Christian, he couldn't get free. But he said, I'm responsible for having gotten to this point because of a whole series of decisions I made earlier in my life to keep repeating this sin. And now, though, I'm really a slave. and I just have to ask God to have mercy on me. I can't get out by myself. And the Lord, in many, many different ways, weakened the chains that were holding him. And one day, the last chain snapped because he paid attention to a grace that God gave him. When God gives you a grace to get out of a trap you're in, when God gives you a grace to get out of a bondage you're in, don't mess with it. Grab it. Run with it. Go through the open door. Don't look back. You don't want to be turned into a pillar of salt like Lot's wife. John the Baptist begins his preaching by saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And people began to respond to the message and flock to him. He began to baptize them in the river, Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? We're not supposed to question people's motives generally. We're supposed to kind of take their repentance at face value. But John the Baptist was the greatest of prophets. And I suppose he could really see accurately into people's hearts. And he felt like they were coming for show. They were coming to win favor with the people that they really weren't repenting. May we never do things for show to impress the Lord or to impress others. May our repentance and our prayer always be sincere. And then he says, if you're really repentant, bear the fruit that befits repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. You know, we're, we're tempted sometimes, us Catholics, to say, you know, I'm a Catholic. You know, I believe I belong to the one true church. I, I believe the fullness of the means of salvation subsists within it. Yes, but you know what Vatican II says? That's not your own doing. That's the gift that God's given to you. And if you don't respond to that gift in word, deed, and thought, listen to this, not only will you not be saved, but you'll be more severely judged. The gifts that God has given us shouldn't be taken lightly. We need to respond to them a thought, word, and deed. I bet you've never heard that Vatican II says that, but it does. The reason why it says it, you look into the footnote, is because Jesus says it. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is going to get into the kingdom of God. 
this is going to be shocking. Not everybody who's baptized is going to get into the kingdom of God. Not everybody who goes to church on Sunday is going to get into the kingdom of God. But only those who do the will of the Father in heaven. That's why we have to be so laser focused on our Father's will. So laser focused on the person of Jesus and his teaching. You know, there's a lot of people today who like Jesus. But there's a lot of people who don't really know the real Jesus. Because you can't know the real Jesus unless you know what he says about himself and what he does. John the Baptist goes on. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The one who's coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Every single one of these themes that John the Baptist is taken up by Jesus. We're used to thinking, well, you know, John the Baptist was the tough guy in the desert. Jesus is the compassionate guy, you know, preaching in the temple. But listen to what Jesus says in almost identical language in those beautiful, so deep, so profound Last Supper discourses. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There's a unity between the warnings of John the Baptist and the warnings of Jesus. Even in these most precious moments, these last moments he has with his disciples, he's talking about two kinds of fire. He's talking about the love that comes from his heart. The sacred heart of Jesus, abiding in the heart of Jesus, is often symbolized by a flame, a flame of love. But he's talking about those who don't abide, those who don't stay united, those who don't draw their strength, those who don't pray, those who don't meditate on his word, are in risk of withering. Sometimes I know this is this is risky to say, but sometimes you might meet somebody who you knew at one point was walking with the Lord, but they've turned away and you can almost feel it in them. 
that something in them has died, something in them has withered, something has gone out of them. And you just pray that they repent before they're cut off and thrown into the fire. The fire of hell. That's an image that Jesus himself uses to describe the state of eternal separation from him. Okay. Our God is a consuming fire is the last verse in Hebrews chapter 12. It's the punchline. And there's so much in Hebrews chapter 12 that prepares us for the punchline. I'm just going to go through a few things that Hebrews chapter 12 tells us so that the consuming fire transforms us rather than destroys us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Out of so much just in those first two verses. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. We've got a cloud of witnesses all over the world, but we've also got a cloud of witnesses of saints and angels. We should so desire to live a life of transparency before the Lord that nothing we say or do privately is any different from what we say or do publicly because we are surrounded by that cloud of witnesses and they are longing for us to grow in righteousness. They are longing for us to grow in holiness. They know now that the one thing necessary is to be one with God. They know that now. And that's what they're praying for, for us. And then persevere in running the race. Paul says, you know, run the race to win, which means you've got to put an effort into it. You don't drift into the kingdom of God. You've got to make some choices. You've got to make some decisions. You've got to leave some things behind and take up some new things. You don't drift into the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent bear it away. <sighs> you know, there's a lot of tough talk coming from Jesus, a lot of people don't want to hear it. But the tough talk of Jesus is love talk. He's trying to wake us up. He's trying to get through to us. He's trying to break through the deception that we live in. He's trying to break through the brainwashing from the world that we're in. He's trying to break us through from the rationalization and procrastination that, that keeps us static and not moving on. He's trying to wake us up because he loves us and he's telling us that like it is. He only had a limited amount of time and a limited amount of words and there's a limited amount of books in the New Testament. There's a limited enough of apostolic teaching and we have to pay attention to it. Run the race with perseverance. It's not enough to get excited about the Lord once a year at a fire rally or at a Lift Jesus higher rally. Thank God for those rallies because we need that encouragement. We need that reminder. We need that support. But we need to be 
persevering. We need not to be looking to repeat certain experiences, but we need to be looking to putting one foot in front of the day after day and following Jesus and loving the people that we're with in our life and humbling ourselves and all the things that need to happen. And how did Jesus do it? For the joy that was set before him, he was able to endure the cross. We need to know the joy that's in our future. The overwhelming joy, the overwhelming love, the overwhelming glory, the overwhelming healing, the overwhelming communion of love amongst those who are in the kingdom in order to endure the crosses. You know, so many people are talking about illness. So many people are talking about the pain of family members not being with the Lord. So many people are talking about the pain of children who have turned away from the faith. We need to persevere in praying for them, in fasting for them. Like Mary said at Fatima, you know, offer prayer and, and sacrifice for reparation for sin and for the conversion of sinners. I've got a YouTube thing on Fatima, so I won't go into it now, but it's really important. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage when you are punished by him. When you're embarrassed, when you fail, when you're corrected, when, when your sin becomes evident, uh, it's because God loves you. It's because God loves you. Your father's trying to help you grow up. Your father's trying to help you grow up and that's why he's revealing your sin. That's why he's letting you experience your weakness. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It just goes on to say. Now, therefore, more advice from the inspired writings so that the last sentence is for us glorious good news of the consuming fire of love and not the consuming fire of judgment. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with all men and for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's straight talk, isn't it? Be a peacemaker. Try to honor people. Try to build unity. It's not always possible. Some people don't want peace. Some people don't want unity. Some people are opposed to the very foundations of the faith, are opposed to Jesus. But, you know, what holiness means is loving like God the Father loves. You know, when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he was talking in the context of the heavenly Father letting his rain fall on the just and the unjust. So we gotta let our love fall on the just and the unjust. And that's a challenge, isn't it? Jesus says, if you love those who love you, hey, the pagans do that. But I say, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. That's a challenge, isn't it? But that's how we grow in love. That's how we grow in union with the Lord. We got to take seriously what it says here. Strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
We've got to set our hearts on striving for holiness because one way or the other, we have to become holy. Now, we can't possibly become holy by ourselves because only God is holy. But he so much wants to heal us. He so much wants to bring peace to our disordered desires. He so much wants to bring us into union with his mind, his heart, his will, if we will allow him to do it. Okay, verse 15. Don't let a root of bitterness grow up in your mind and heart and defile others. You know, people who pray with people for healing and deliverance say that almost always the biggest obstacle to experiencing the freedom and love of Jesus is bitterness, is unforgiveness. Everybody has good reason to be bitter, angry, hurt, wounded, offended, and not forgive. That's how life in this world is. But Jesus tells us, the apostles tell us, don't let that root of bitterness grow up and defile you and others. And when we're praying with people for healing, for deliverance, almost always we need to encourage them to let go of the bitterness, let go of the offense. It doesn't mean that we have to agree that what happened wasn't terrible. It doesn't mean that we don't think that Justice has to be done and it hasn't been done. But we're letting go of our bitterness. We're letting go of our unforgiveness and releasing them to the mercy and judgment of God. And the amazing thing is that releases us too. We've been held captive if we've been nourishing unforgiveness in our heart. So if that's, a, if that's an issue for you tonight, and it could be, uh, ask the Lord to help you to let go of that bitterness. Yes, terrible, terrible things have been done to other human beings by human beings. Yes, horrible, horrible things have been done. But we have to let the Lord judge, let the Lord do justice. We have to let go and go on with our life. The Lord will help us if we want. And then in verse 17, it says... Don't anybody be immoral or irreligious like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. That was kind of stupid, wasn't it? In order to get one good meal, Esau gave up his inheritance. So afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Don't foolishly grab immediate gratification in a way that endangers your eternal salvation. You never know how much time you have left to live. You never know when your last chance to repent has just taken place. Don't presume on the mercy of God. Respond to the mercy of God. Don't presume on how much longer you have to live. But if you hear his voice today, harden not your heart. Live every day like it could be your last because it could be. Live every day like it could be your last because it could be. One of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 
45 or 9. Anyway, it's, it's a psalm. It says, meditate on the shortness of life and gain wisdom of heart. When we know that life is short, when we know that only one thing is necessary, when we know that the whole purpose of our life is to become one with God, it's going to help focus us. It's going to help make decisions. It's going to help make sacrifice. It's going to help us deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. Finally, verses 25 to 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. I'm speaking, but I'm speaking the word of God. This is the word of God. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. It's, it's really terrible to not, not pay attention when God is speaking. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's really offensive. It's really stupid. It's reprehensible. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, many, many of the, the judgments and punishments in history, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Jesus is the man from heaven. Nobody has been to heaven. Nobody's come down from heaven except Jesus, the man from heaven. Don't ignore the man from heaven who's speaking from heaven. His voice then shook the earth in the old covenant, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of what is shaken, as of what has been made, in order that what cannot be shaken may remain. Have you noticed we're going through a shaking? Our nations are shaking. Our church is shaking. We're going through a shaking so that what may not be shaken may remain, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You know, Peter's new booklet about fear of the Lord is what what this is talking about here. We need to remember who God is. We need to remember the care with which we should listen to him and the humility with which we should approach him and the reverence that we should show to him because of who he is, he's God. We owe everything to him. We know we owe everything to him. St. Paul says, what do you have that you haven't been given? What do you have that you haven't been given? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty wonderful that we've been given the gift of knowing Jesus Christ 
and being part of the Holy Catholic Church, which is holy despite of its problems. It's the body of Christ. There are dead members of the body. There are traitors in the church. There are unfaithful shepherds. But the living part of the Catholic Church is the body of Christ. That will not be shaken. We may become a remnant again. And it looks like that's the direction we're going in. But the remnant has always been in God's plan, in God's heart, in God's hands. It's out of the remnant, it's out of the faithful remnant, out of renewal really comes, out of a new wave of the Holy Spirit comes. But in the meantime, people sometimes ask me because of the book I've just written, A Church in Crises, aren't you discouraged? Here's my answer. Not at all. I hope you don't scandalize this, but I'm excited. God's really doing something. He's shaking. Things need to be shaken so that what is unshakable will stand out, will be clear, and people can flock to it who have open hearts and open minds. I'm also not discouraged at all because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the demons tremble, and the darkness trembles. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This podcast is brought to you by Renewal Ministries, part of the Renewal Podcast Network. If you are enjoying this podcast, we invite you to help us spread the word by leaving us a rating or review, following or subscribing to this podcast, or sharing on social media. Until next time, this is Right Now with Ralph Martin.